Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 64. The year is 2021, and in just a few short weeks, we will be upon the 58th anniversary of the JFK assassination, and just about the one-year anniversary date of this podcast. 63 episodes produced before today. (laughs) Well, actually, 64 when you count the prologue. I forgot to number that one. I was not really sure at the time that there would ever be more than one, let alone 63 more. Well, today's episode is episode number 64, and I guess it's really the 65th. Anyway, last week's episode was an important number. It's obviously symbolic at episode number 63, the same number as the year of the assassination, and it's an episode production pace that is just a little more than one a week. So hopefully it's been satisfactory in terms of satisfying your own interest in the topic and fitting in with the time available in your own life to do so. I know that lately you have had to wait a little longer in between episodes, but the material is, frankly, getting murkier. You know, I've said this on several occasions that I am an N of one. I am but one person producing everything about this podcast. Well, that's only possible because I am not doing any original research. Sure, I am synthesizing all sorts of material from all sorts of sources and applying what I hope to be a cogent analytical approach and even my own writing and delivery style at the end of the day. But we have to give credit where credit is due. So much of the autopsy story comes from some of the original researchers in this area. I have to pay a tribute to David Lifton. David is quite controversial in some ways. He wrote a bestseller back in the 1960s called Best Evidence. At that time, he forged a relationship with Wesley Liebler after the publication of the Warren Commission and while he was a student in college at UCLA, and Liebler was there as a professor. If you've been listening to the podcast or you are more than knee-deep inside of the JFK assassination story, you know that Wesley Liebler was an important figure on the Warren Commission staff. Liebler was a lawyer that was responsible for much of the generalist work, so to speak, that was done regarding who Lee Harvey Oswald really was and why he might have done it. You've heard Liebler at times on this podcast taking witness depositions, some of which were humorously controlled by the overriding culture that dominated how the staff was to approach things at the Warren Commission. Some of it was just Liebler, too. After the Warren Commission report was published and after it began to be criticized and after the world was just learning how to uh, push back on the Warren Commission report, well, Liebler, uh, he too was actually pushing a little bit from the inside out. His world was beginning to open up and in some ways contribute to that movement. He was a critic in some ways, and don't get me wrong, in other ways he was an ardent defender. Nevertheless, his desire and decision to receive the invitation of connection from Lifton in the post-Warren Commission publication period 
was indeed a catalyst for David Lifton himself. Lifton's own matriculation on the JFK matter may have been a product of the spectacular and the unbelievable, all combined. What I mean by that is that there was such a wide gap in the difference between how the Parkland doctors, who were frankly more experienced in reviewing gunshot wounds, well, in reconciling what they looked at and what they saw while they were treating the president. And what came out of the autopsy itself from the Bethesda doctors, who were quite less experienced than the Parkland doctors. Well, at least at looking at gunshot wounds anyway. Well, it was such a wide chasm that there needed to be a deeper study and a deeper understanding of how things could be seen so differently between two sets of clinical professionals. Look, it's not necessarily unusual that a doctor who is tasked with saving the life of a patient sees certain things differently, differently than a pathologist who is trained in forensics. To study a death in the silence of a morgue and to observe and inspect and do surgery on a dead body? Literally, they really are two different specialties. One of my doctor friends said, yes, when you put it that way, I totally agree. Forensic pathology does not intersect really in any way with the work of a doctor who takes care of the living. Everything is relative in life. Much of the evidence that was gathered for Lifton's book was done several years post the actual assassination. And back then, they wondered if that passage of time, that amount of time, would be too much to overcome when it came to ensuring a proper reconciliation of memory by the critical witnesses that were involved. Isn't that a rather humorous discussion today when we are now 58 years past the assassination and most of the witnesses to anything relevant are dead? And if they were alive, well, at this age, who knows? Thankfully, individuals undertook that task at the moment of consciousness about how controversial the Warren Commission report really was. It might have been four years past the fact, and that might have seemed like a long time at that moment in the analysis of a crime scene, but it wasn't. It wasn't 40 years past the fact, or today it wasn't 58 years past the fact. What do they say? A journey of a thousand miles begins with the initial first step. These folks took just that, and just then. Thank goodness they did. Lifton and his bestseller, Best Evidence, he did a wonderful job in many ways of documenting an incredible amount of important historical activity. Where I depart with his findings are his fundamental premise that the body was altered somewhere between Parkland and the moment of the official autopsy. This was his way of reconciliation between what the good doctors at Parkland saw and what the good doctors at Bethesda saw. It was a way to justify what both doctor groups saw and leave both doctor groups somewhat pristine in the discussion, as if no forces had been bearing down on them, and they themselves had done nothing dubious. By inserting the concept of some unforeseen nefarious force in between the two, a force that did something to alter the president's body something to make a difference between the physical evidence that those doctors saw at Parkland in the form of JFK's body 
and the same physical evidence that doctors then subsequently viewed and analyzed at Bethesda after the body was delivered there. Honestly, the attempts to reconcile this are born out of the fact that the facts, as seen by both groups of doctors, are, at certain moments, so widely divergent. It's hard to believe that they all saw the same body. Had this not occurred, I don't think David Lifton would have gone to the extremes of thinking in the way that he did. That is just me talking here. But because these discrepancies were, in fact, the case, and because there was a necessity to reconcile these gaping differences, these theories sprung into life and sprung into action. Sadly, I believe they negate so much original and objective historical research that is relevant to telling the story of the JFK autopsy. Maybe Lifton is right that the body was altered in some way. There are some things that perhaps point to that. But honestly, I doubt it. There are other problems with the autopsy and the documentation surrounding the autopsy and the conclusions contained in the autopsy. But I don't believe they involve surgery prior to the autopsy itself. Now, before any of you conclude on any of this... We'll get to some interesting topics on that very subject. There were two particular FBI agents present at the autopsy, and ironically, these two FBI agents may have been the only two telling the more comprehensive truth that night, the truth about what really happened, and they documented it in a 302 report that, can you believe it, never made its way into the Warren Commission documents. So surprising. But that report was later subsequently unearthed. Siebert and O'Neill are their names. You know, I'm a stickler for precision language. Be very careful about the words you use, the way you say something, how you choose to deliver it. I am not always personally perfect at that, but I do realize that an imperfection in the delivery of anything you say, particularly on a technical subject, can be a real disaster. These two men and their now famous FBI report of the autopsy basically stated that there had been surgery to the head. Well, if you are a conspiracy theorist, this is like serving up an underhand pitch when you're trying to hit one out of left field and far beyond the bleachers. Surgery to the head prior to the actual official autopsy starting? Yes, sir. That's what the literal reading of that document says. (laughs) Thankfully, there is an explanation for that. We're going to get into the Siebert and O'Neill report, but not yet. Hold on for just a minute. These guys were heroes of sorts. I'll explain that when we get into it. The original tangent of this prologue was to pay due respect to David Lifton and to others, too, like William Manchester and folks like James Fetzer and Cyril Wecht and to Dr. Livingston and Mantic, or lesser-known authors such as Mike Davis, who have a sharp analytical mind to the basic facts, and the kind of person who has built on some of the basic work that was done by someone like Sylvia Maurer. And really, there was a whole host of others, all of whom have either in a very comprehensive way or tangentially added something rich to the discussion about the autopsy. Lifton, in Best Evidence, dedicates a whole section of the book 
on the decoy ambulance. It was, under certain circumstances, a standard technique to use two ambulances, one of which carried the real body in one ambulance and another that carried nothing. It was just a decoy. Why you need a decoy ambulance in the first place for a dead body is an interesting side topic that we won't get into here. But yes, there are perhaps protocols for such things. The motorcade that night from Andrews Air Force Base to Bethesda did indeed contain a decoy ambulance. Lifton figured that out. There was a significant delay in the delivery of the body to Bethesda and the start of the autopsy. Combine this with a substantial level of confusion around a second ambulance, this decoy ambulance, and then add to it conflicting reports about what time the body arrived at the morgue and whether or not it arrived in a common shipping casket. And then the time the actual autopsy got started, a gap of time for sure, perhaps up to about 90 minutes from about 6.35 p.m. to just about 8 a time gap that created opportunity for nefarious behavior in the eyes of Lifton. And the next thing you know, all these factors combined, a time lag, a decoy ambulance, a shipping casket, well, it all becomes fertile ground for concluding that there was a surgical alteration of JFK's body before the official autopsy actually occurred. A break in the chain of evidence combined with a real evil dose of something. A pretty big leap of faith, I think, in all things nefarious. But then again, you add on top of it the testimony of a handful of minor participants in the handling of the president's body, where some pretty interesting things get said, well, all of which point to those very nefarious things. This altogether introduces some wonder about the topic, if not out and out reasonable doubt. Now, we are not in a courtroom, but if we were, and you are the jury here, well, there may be reasonable doubt regarding a pristine chain of custody. And if that is true, you got a hell of a formula for something very sinister when you listen to some of those testimonials. Look, I can't buy the lift in theory that the body was altered, but that doesn't negate the rather prodigious level of research that was done on so many other topics by Lifton and done in the time frame that was so much closer to real time than we could ever hope to get to now. Let's listen carefully to all the true facts that we know about in this part of the JFK story from many official and other sources, including researchers and some eyewitnesses. Rarely, this was under sworn testimony, but at least a bit of critical testimony was. Let's keep the baby and throw out the bathwater. You've heard that one before from me. So, to say it more plainly, let's make our own decisions on what is real and what is conjecture, and what is simply made up in order to sell books and make others famous in the midst of someone else's tragedy. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 64 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Finally, the ambulance would make its way from the main entrance of the hospital to the area around the back where the entrance to the morgue was located. 
There was still one hurdle to get the JFK body and the casket inside the morgue. In today's terms, we tend to think of egress and exit, especially at a healthcare facility, that is more easily navigated by ramps. Ramps that are nowadays required by the ADA or the Americans with Disabilities Act. Not back then. It was a typical concrete infrastructure in front of the morgue that was unusually hard to navigate. And once you got past that, you still had to go up a short flight of concrete steps that were guarded by a handrail. It was a narrow traverse, especially when trying to navigate it with an 800-pound casket in tow. Awkward is the best adjective to describe the group of men involved as they took the president's casket up a turn and next to that steel handrail. Godfrey McHugh was with them, and they included men who had flown back from the Andrews Air Force Base on the H-21 helicopter, the honor guard under Sam Bird. They were all helping now and trying to get the president's casket in position within the morgue. Godfrey McHugh would say it would be appropriate for a general to join hands with the five enlisted men, and he then relieved the Coast Guardsmen on the team. He soon found himself, as prideful as that moment might have been in the sorrow of the exercise, simply incapable of helping the rest of the team lug the large casket up the steps. He soon yielded back to the Coast Guardsmen. Now, as your official podcaster, I'm going to stop there. Right from the very beginning of bringing the president's body into the morgue, there are varying accounts of how the casket even got inside. And who took the president's body? out of the casket. Some of the controversy starts right here. Remember that I mentioned Siebert and O'Neill, the two FBI agents. Well, Jim Siebert remembers no such honor guard group assisting in the traverse up the steps to the morgue. He clearly remembers that he and O'Neill, that is the two FBI agents, and then Roy Kellerman and William Greer, the two Secret Service agents, then supplemented by a few of the Bethesda staff that were on hand, That is who brought up the casket. But O'Neill, at one point, stuck to the story that the honor guard was involved. There is some validity to the theory that O'Neill may have been aware of the gross deviation from the government's protocol of having the honor guard perform this task. But if they were not involved, then it brings up more serious concerns about the comments made by O'Neill. Unfortunately, these stories and the confusion about a basic fact of who took JFK's casket out of the limousine have added another dimension to the mystery that David Lifton and others have espoused about a second casket, a cheap shipping casket that may have also been delivered by one of the parties, as they tell the story of the decoy ambulance and the delivery of a second casket. This confusion fits right into Lifton's theory. But for the moment, we won't get distracted with that. Promise you, though, I will come back to it. Suffice it to say that the honking bronze casket containing the president finally made its way into the ante room of the morgue, and then finally into the main autopsy room of the morgue. And then it was finally opened up. And there he was. There are a few different time references, but suffice it to say that by about 7.35 p.m. that evening, the president's body was well-positioned in the morgue to start the process of the autopsy. At about 7.35 p.m., the process of removing him from the casket had begun, and they started by unwrapping the president. He was enclosed in sheets, several of them. 
and one was separately wrapped around his head. And in the few hours between Parkland and Bethesda, his head had continued to bleed. The separate sheet that covered his head was covered in blood. Autopsies are messy, as you may well suspect. It is truly a surgical procedure performed on the body. So before all of that commences, there was a set of radiology x-rays that were taken and a set of photographs that were taken. In a minute, we will meet the men involved in that process. It took the better part of a half hour to complete this work, and the actual autopsy itself started somewhere between 8 o'clock and 8.15 that night. Again, before we get into those details, it's probably prudent to introduce all of the characters in this chapter of the play. So let's take the time now to introduce everyone that was documented to be in the room that evening at Bethesda as part of the autopsy team or simply as a witness. There is much folklore and, quite frankly, a central question around who was there that night and whether the autopsy itself was tightly controlled by the military or the CIA or the FBI or the Secret Service. All of these agencies had personnel present with the exception of the CIA, and all of them represented powerful government forces. And if you go back to my central question around whether the autopsy was legitimate or not, and if you take that to its highest level of speculation, there is then a fundamental question of whether the autopsy was broadly controlled by one or more of those groups. So let's meet the players. Here is the good news. The Siebert and O'Neill FBI report filed on the autopsy is widely believed to be the only comprehensive inventory of individuals who attended the autopsy that night. Do you remember the scene in Oliver Stone's JFK where the good doctors are attempting to perform an appropriate and thorough forensic examination and autopsy and there is a rather misty fog-like moment within the autopsy room, and the room itself is overflowing with what appears to be military personnel and men in black suits, the power structure of the government bearing down on them. Well, honestly, as much as I really like that movie, and there is a lot of truth contained in that movie, that scene is one where there was some editorial discretion applied. So let's summarize who was there, and you can decide if it was nefarious or not, at least per se, based on attendance. The Siebert and O'Neill report contains the names of 24 individuals that were there that night. That count does not include four individuals from the Gawler Funeral Home who subsequently entered the morgue after the autopsy was completed. They did so to perform the work on the president in order to ready his body so that it could then be taken to the White House. Let's start with the main characters, and I will list first those that were there primarily to perform something related to the autopsy itself, and then finish with those that appeared to be there for just observation and as witnesses. The three main characters are the doctors that were there to perform or in some way participate in the autopsy. That was Commander James J. Humes, the central character in the autopsy, and the Dr. J. Thornton Boswell. Also present was Dr. Pierre Fink. Fink joined the autopsy in process after being called by Commander Humes. Fink did not glove up, but instead observed the autopsy as it was being conducted. We'll get into the background of these three individuals in the next episode. 
John Ebersaw was chief of radiology. He was the primary person charged with conducting the radiological exam. Ebersaw may be the most compelling and impressive witness in this clinical group. I am teasing you a little bit now, and I do promise that I will reveal the reason for that soon enough. Mr. John Stringer was the medical photographer. J.C. Jenkins and Paul O'Connor were in the pathology department and were there to give assistance in whatever ways doctors directed, including the performance of some minor autopsy procedures themselves. We'll hear some astounding information from both of them before these episodes on the autopsy are over. Gerald Cresser and Edward Reed were supporting staff from the x-ray department and assisted John Ebersall in his function as the chief radiologist. There appears to be two other medical personnel that were essentially assistants and were in the detail listing contained in the Siebert and O'Neill report, but the report does not specify what they did. Finding that out proved to be more difficult, and a cursory review and other documents produced nothing for me. So without digging further, I am going to assume that they may have played a minor clinical support role. It may be because their names were misspelled in the Siebert and O'Neill reports. For instance, one individual, spelled Lloyd Ray, may actually be Floyd Rabe, a name that was more clearly spelled on a receipt that was made that night for photography and radiographic materials. The other individual was James Metzler. That makes for a running total so far of 11 medical personnel. So, who are the other 13 individuals in the room, and why were they there? First, let's start with the Secret Service. There were three Secret Service agents there that night. You already know two of them. Men that had a real interest in this and a real connection to the Kennedys. William Greer, the driver of the limousine, and Roy Kellerman. And there was a third Secret Service agent there, too, Agent William O'Leary. There were two FBI agents, Siebert and O'Neill, as you know, and the Bureau asked for two to make sure that there was a clear chain of custody of the body as it arrived from Andrews and that what was seen and what was documented that night at the autopsy was objectively reported on and could be corroborated by another agent. So, That is five of the remaining 13 accounted for so far. Eight to go. Next, let's turn to the naval officers. The Bethesda campus is run by naval officers, so no surprise, right? Men with high ranks who wear officers' clothes and naval caps and the kind of uniforms that conjure up all sorts of power persona. And there were plenty of those that day, and for the most part, it seemed pretty logical for them to be there. Now, we have eight to go to get to 24, so let's talk about four naval officer observers. First, Captain Jack Stover, who was head of the U.S. Naval Medical School at Bethesda. Second, Admiral Galloway, who was head of the entire campus at Bethesda and to which Captain Stover reported. Galloway had overall authority over all of these medical functions at Bethesda, including the medical school and the hospital all reporting up to him. And then there was Captain David Osborne, who was chief of surgery at Bethesda Hospital. Lieutenant Commander Greg Cross, whose position was not described in the report, also entered with Dr. Osborne. Okay, we're now down to the remaining four. 
First, Godfrey McHugh, the Air Force military aide to the president, who we know well already in this story. He was a trusted friend of the Kennedys. Also present was another doctor, Dr. George Bakeman of the U.S. Navy. It's not clear why he was there, but he was a doctor. Late in the game came Chester Boyers of the U.S. Navy, who was an individual called in to type up some of the receipts for the materials that were handed over to the Secret Service and the FBI. And finally, Admiral Berkeley himself, the president's personal physician. We know him well already on this podcast. That's it. That's the group that was there. There were many, for sure, and a lot of them were uniformed officers, probably all looking pretty powerful in their military outfits. But when you break it down, not so nefarious a group, really. And for me, being in the hospital business, this group seemed like a natural to be there. Now, we don't know what went on there. I don't want to speculate on that. Could there have been force supply behind the scenes? Possibly, but it was not applied by some odd forces that were called in off the bench by the CIA or someone in some overt fashion, such as you might expect in a political coup. If it happened, it was more subtle than that. But I am neither black or white here, nor am I naive. It could have happened. And in fact, there is at least one credible witness that would say, maybe, maybe it did. We will hear from him shortly. This was a significant wander to chronicle all 24 individuals in the autopsy room, but I did that for a purpose. First, I wanted to introduce you to the players, and there are so many, so that hearing their names, at least in the beginning, may make it easier to follow the story. But more importantly, to diffuse one of the most important questions around the autopsy itself. Who was there in the room that night? in attendance at the autopsy, and why were they there? And what influences might they have had on the conduct of the autopsy itself? There's a lot of mystery around this topic, and really without anyone ever diving much into these details. This may be the only time you will ever hear it on a podcast, but at least you'll understand that while there were a lot of people in that room that night, It wasn't set up to execute a conspiracy by using overt force or influence in the room on the physicians. Given the circumstances, it was a group you would likely expect to be there. Thank you for listening to episode 64 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 